This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Country and city united we stand. Protect our water, protect our land. Tonight we're talking about coal seam gas. A year ago, we reported on the massive rally in front of Sydney's Parliament House. Country and city people were calling for a moratorium on coal seam gas in New South Wales. We spoke to Drew Hutton from Lock the Gate Alliance and Fiona Simpson from the Farmers Federation. They didn't want the damage that has so clearly happened in Queensland to contaminate the water, air and the land of New South Wales, where our food is grown. Coal seam gas has united people in New South Wales so I went to hear the debate in Parliament on a moratorium on coal seam gas licences. On my way to the Chamber, I saw a media pack gathered around the Deputy Premier, Troy Grant. All the TV cameras and the bristle of radio microphones was there, and I saw the word fossil behind the Minister for Resources, and I thought, oh, that's me. This must be something about fossil gas. And so I joined the throng. But it was not about that. It was about the new fossil emblem of New South Wales that was exciting, uh, the, the pack. There was a big model of it. It looks like a small shark. And it's called Mandageria Fairfaxi. I think it's something to do with the Fairfax Media Empire. Mandageria Fairfaxi, a 370-million-year-old fossil. And it was a great puff piece for tonight's news. Here's the paleontologist. So, this fish had no enemies. There were no birds at this time. There was nothing that would tackle it. But it still succumbed to the ravages of drought. The whole of the billabong dried up, killing more than 4,000 fish. And that's only the ones we know about. There's a lot more buried still. And then flooding rains brought in a, a, a quick succession of sands which buried the entire pool of dead fish and preserved them perfectly. Just before the media dashed back to base, the Deputy Premier of New South Wales, Troy Grant from the Nationals Party, was asked about the coal seam gas issue. Deputy Premier, um, the Nationals um, have lost support um, on the North Coast because of their policy on CSG. Um, isn't that a bit of a wake-up call, though, for the Nationals? Uh, support uh, in the Northern Rivers, no doubt, was in, affected and impacted by the, the significant scare campaign run by the Labor Party and the Greens, and 
and the fact that I said that this debate had polarised uh, the state, but in particular the Northern Rivers, for a significant period of time. Again, this is one that uh, we inherited, a debate we did not cause, and that I think, and I'm very um, firm in saying this, this is a, a price that the Nationals paid on an electoral basis that was extraordinarily unfair. Uh, we are actually the only ones that are addressing the community concerns. That is demonstrated in proof, not in rhetoric rubbish from Labor and the Greens. We are committed to being honest and open with our communities. We back our regional communities and we are the only ones, measure us up any day of the week that you like about who is delivering for regional New South Wales. It's the Liberals and Nationals, not these other puppets. So do you, are you saying to all the anti-CSG campaigners across the North Coast and the Pilliga that they're wrong on CSG? I say to all of them that we have sat down listened to their concerns, we have examined their concerns and the science has been clear on this and our strategic gas plan responds to those concerns on an evidence and scientific base and that's the path we will continue to take. Yeah, just before the penalty uh, blockade came to an end uh, in April last year, there was the prospect of police officers in the Lismore area having to lock up their own relatives who joined uh, what was any large-scale civil, civil disobedience or protest and the like is obviously a concern and one we always want to avoid. Unfortunately, those that profits of doom and that polarise the community are the ones that cause these problems. And it's uh, our onus and our responsibility as a government to be honest, transparent and communicate with those communities to allay the concerns and put the resources where necessary to give them the facts and the proof and uh, base our policy, legislative and all other decisions based on science, evidence, not on rhetoric or populist viewpoints. I don't think any of those journalists went into the Parliament to hear the debate, but I was there in the public gallery with all those citizens from country places like Wee War and Gloucester, plus others where coal seam gas projects are threatened. We were subjected to a most insulting speech which went like this. The Honourable Peter Phelps looked up to the public gallery and spoke about the uh, gathered people there like this. This ignorance has been fostered by misinformation from green extremists. That is the nature of the contemporary green movement in Australia and in many other places in the Western world. It is a pyramid structure. At the base is the vast majority of people who would be described as ordinary concerned citizens. They are sincere but ill-informed. People who are pulled along by emotion and who know little about the technical aspects of coal seam gas extraction. They believe what they hear in good faith, but at the same time they must rely upon the often tainted evidence of so-called green experts. That is the broad base of the modern environment movement. The middle group are fewer in number and I would call them the lunatics or the activists. They are people who would have a tubal ligation rather than bring another filthy human into the world. They see humanity as a scourge and dream of a great plague that will wipe out 90% of humanity. In lieu of this natural population reduction and at this point, listeners, I'm reading to you from Hansard, uh, the Honourable Adam Searle from the Labour Party jumped out of his seat and said, the member is pushing the bounds of acceptable parliamentary language. But the Honourable Dr Peter Phelps went on. 
The reference to the scourge of humanity is taken from James Dellingpole's book, Watermelons, in which he quotes senior leaders of the British Green Movement. These are not made-up examples. And then he went on. I was referring to the middle group in the pyramid, the extremists, the activists. They support alternative energy, not in spite of its inefficiency, but precisely because of its inefficiency. They seek a lower standard of living for all humanity. They want humanity to make a smaller footprint on the world. They want to force us back into a neo-primitive state where we are all subsistence producers and consumers. I turn now to the leadership of the Green Movement. They are the people who see the environment movement as a means of achieving socialist control, of course, with them in charge. They are the broad-brush Marxists who controlled the peace movement in the 1930s, the 1950s and the 1960s, and the anti-nuclear movement in the 1970s and the 1980s, and who now have a common cause with the Greens to destroy capitalism. What would replace capitalism. At this point, the president of the chamber called out, Order! I warn people in the public gallery that if they cannot observe the debate in silence, they will be removed. Well, the public gallery, you can imagine the outcry, this provocation from Dr. Peter Phelps. But uh, Peter Phelps went on. That is the motivation. We have a pyramid structure that creates disinformation. We have the Stalinists, the sociopaths, the suckers, the Marxists, the misanthropists and the misguided. Farmers have an absolutely legitimate concern about infringement of their land, but the solution is not banning an entire industry. It is the recognition of property rights. At this point, I looked around in the public gallery. I couldn't see any obvious sociopaths or suckers or lunatics. The absolute heroes of the climate movement were there, in my opinion, and they were the same people that I've reported on over the last two or three years, you know, protesting about this invasion of their land and very risky um, pushing through of coal seam gas. Listeners, I read to you from Hansard because I, I couldn't record in the chamber, but I think it's worth hearing that this is a sort of debate that goes on, this very ideological debate using all of those little buzzwords that you then read in the Daily Telegraph or the, um, you know, the tabloid press. The person who put this bill up was a Greens member, Mr Jeremy Buckingham. He thanked the parliamentarians for their contribution at the end and he said, the only contribution I set aside from others is the Honourable Dr Peter Phelps who said that those people who are concerned are socialists, psychopaths and suckers. Well, socialists, psychopaths and the most concerning term is suckers. That is an abominable thing to say to those people who have legitimate concerns about this industry. Those concerns are based on science, research and travel and have been well considered. Some of the most respected scientists in this country are saying there are enormous risks, as is the farming community. We must make a distinction, saying that fracking is the same as drilling for bores in the Great Artesian Basin ignores the complexity and the detail of the industry and the experience in the United States and Queensland of drilling for unconventional gas. The community has said, no, we do not want this industry. There are alternatives. 
We have a conventional gas industry in Bass Strait and the Cooper Basin. The mining industry has been foisted upon us as a part of a massive export industry. But no one has considered its socio-economic and environmental outcomes. We live in a democracy and I am absolutely certain it is the will of the majority of people in New South Wales. People will understand the industry once they stand near a compressor station situated next to a community, see the kids with the bleeding noses and meet the people who are stressed. When industry figures say, of course aquifer interconnectivity will occur, that is what happens when you drill bores, well, despite how much concrete and steel is put into the annulus, well, casings can fail. There is no certainty in this industry, and as sure as night follows day, the conflagration will continue. These people will never go away because their community is on the line. They belong to the dairy industry, the equine industry, the tourism industry, the fishing industry. They are croppers and oyster growers. Those people want to live peaceful life, be it in St Peter's, Gloucester, the Northern Rivers or the Liverpool Plains. They do not want an industrialised landscape. And then he finishes. This is uh, Mr Jeremy Buckingham. Time and again we are told that the risks can be managed. Do we need to take the risk? The overwhelming response by the community is no. I thank my colleagues in the Greens for their contribution. I thank the Animal Justice Party for bringing its perspective to this debate and I thank the Labour Party for bringing forward a comprehensive range of amendments even though they were derided by members opposite as being for a different bill. The community, including the farming community from the Liverpool Plains, has said no. Representatives from as far away as Weewar, Lismore, the Southern Highlands have travelled here today to represent their communities. We all would like this matter to be resolved. Ultimately, this industry does not have a social licence. Back in the early 1990s, communities were not asked whether they wanted their areas to become gas fields. They were not privy to the discussions of government and industry about the new technology that was to be unleashed on the community and they remain concerned at the boom-bust disaster that Queensland has become. Look at the socio-economic catastrophe that has happened in Chinchilla. That's a town in Queensland where they have many calcium gas mines uh, drilling. The industry came and went. The community collapsed. On a daily basis, farmers up there are reporting depressurisation of water bores and the rates of stillbirths in cattle has gone through the roof. The industry is now not doing what it said it would. Fences are being left open and spreading weeds are contaminating the landscape. That is the legacy that is emerging after such a short time. It is even worse in the United States. That is what will be visited upon us. You cannot cherry pick an area. If I had my way, I would say let us make ourselves gas field free. Some people think that they can defend their little patch. That will not work. Someone will always be outside that little patch. This Parliament should be working in the best interests of all people in New South Wales. If this bill again fails, I resolve to continue the fight along with many others until New South Wales is gas field free. Well, the vote was against the bill. Uh, It was very close, uh, three votes difference. So I think the the bill will come up again, as uh, Mr Jeremy Buckingham said. 
I'm now taking you outside Parliament where I interviewed some of the people, very short interviews with just the people who were had assembled outside Parliament, rather shocked that they'd come all this way to hear, hopingly hear good news, but that it was very bad news for them, but all resolving to fight on. So just listen in to the New South Wales people talking about the Coalsium Gas Moratorium Bill. someone who's farming up at Weewar, northern New South Wales. She has dry land farming, cattle, chickpeas, wheat. wheat. Um, tell us about the impact of coal seam gas drilling in your area. Well, Eastern Star Gas have been there for quite a long time and they uh, on-sold it to Santos. Um, in 2010, um, we were approached to have seismic testing on country that we owned and we said no, uh, and all our neighbours said no, even though um, the person told us that everybody else had said yes. So Santos is in the area? Santos is in the area. Santos um, have got massive, massive problems and no idea of how to uh, deal with their um, brine waste from any production that goes ahead. They haven't an answer of what's going to happen to it and this is the very beginning. So Santos want to get, this is the very beginning of getting into New South Wales in the northwest. Um, one of the things they say is that it is up to the farmer to prove that any damage has been done by them so it, everything comes back to us to prove everything uh, well, I applaud you coming down here. Thank you very much for talking to us. It's very sad for any, everyone here, people coming from so far away, hoping to have a win on this. Um, the quality of the debate was appalling, I thought. Um, what do you think the next step is? Um, the next step is we have to keep on um, getting... Uh, politicians to understand what is really going on with coal seam gas, what really happens. Um, farmers in Queensland have to sign confidentiality agreements that they will never speak about any damage that they have if they're in a, if they're in a contract with a coal seam gas company. So that, that, that's why a lot of people don't speak up and that's why... Uh, New South Wales is New South Wales, the farmers of New South Wales are not going to go down that track. Fantastic, thank you very much thank you. Well we're the Hunter Nanners we've come down to support the bill because it's very important to communities and that I thought the debate was quite um, <coughs> parts of it were quite disgraceful I really resent coming all the way from Newcastle and being told that the gallery was psychopaths and um, fools and suckers. I thought that was very derogatory and I don't think that's got a place in politics. The politicians are not representing the people if they have an attitude like that. Mm. And I think the bill should have been passed because the majority of people in New South Wales, I think it's something ridiculous like 87% of people in New South Wales are opposed to CSG and the politicians seem to be the only ones that want it and the mining corporations yeah these two ladies are knitting nanas would you like to tell me where you come from and what you thought about the um, defeat of the coal seam gas bill today i'm from the illawarra 
and um, of course we're feeling very sad and angry at the moment um, we keep coming here with hope we've been coming here for the last four or five years we're in our local community trying to protect our drinking water there is um, there are no coal seam gases there at the moment because they have been withdrawn but there is no guarantee for the future all we want down there is a permanent ban we also support the other communities who quite rightly have been fighting against this industry in their own areas so we support them too but our local story is trying to protect drinking water for four and a half million people what did you think of the quality of the debate i'm used to coming to parliament i'm used to language um, so it was no surprise to hear the insults and everything today i find it quite um amusing that like the public are asked to behave and yet we have to sit there and listen to what our politicians are really like and the, the facades that some of them put on when they are in the public you know and pretend to be on our side and pretend to be gentlemen and then we come and hear all their rubbish which really just shows their ignorance I think. I thought it was a very ignorant debate. What about you? Who are you? Hello my name's Margaret I'm from Camden where AGL is operating wells at the moment and some of these wells are as close as 200 metres to homes and um, we are seeing health problems, nosebleeds with children out there and not only that, the government is still allowing new homes to be built close to the wells that's very concerning. It came up in the Parliament that the public was never consulted on that. Is that the main thing that gets you? Well, I think every at the beginning, no one really knew the risks. I've heard our mayor at the time at Camden, I've heard him say that he didn't understand the risks when it first started. And I think that was the same for everyone. But once you know, you have to fight. That's what I think. Thank you. Fighting words, great. Thank you. Uh, my name's Ellie. I'm from Lismore in the Northern Rivers. Um, I'm part of a, a massive movement up there called Gasfield Free Northern Rivers. Um, look, we were really happy with the um, speeches and the debate as as presented by Labor and by the Greens and by Fred Nile and the Christian Democrats Party um, and the Animal Justice Party. So it just shows that there is really a broad consensus emerging on these issues. Um, it's really disappointing to still hear those um, myths being bandied about about the community that it's extremists and that and that we you know don't know what we're talking about and that we're all just um, suckers suckers and hysterical and um, that we belong to some sort of cult it's just not true I mean in the northern rivers is just a snapshot of the movement in New South Wales and in up there we've got more than 34,000 homes we've got survey results coming back more than 95 percent against it's it's a clear majority just because some of the other regions in New South Wales don't have those similar figures coming in it doesn't mean that the opposition isn't as strong isn't as well informed and um, yeah it's just disappointing that the government is still refusing to listen to what the community wants. Well I remember reporting on the Bentley blockade and I think I got the impression that actually the police were frightened or the government was frightened to actually the number of police they'd have to deploy for the number of people you could generate as a um, protest group just peacefully protesting their invasion of your land. So 
what um, Bente came up today in the debate and they seemed to say that well you know policemen will be arresting their own relatives probably well, what's in that community what, what's happening now about Bentley uh, so the farm, there's many people here today from Bentley actually, some of the landholders from Bentley. They're still absolutely staunchly opposed. Um, the neighbours that surround that particular well site are all against. The only properties in that particular valley that support drilling is the property that the drill site is actually on and that landholder doesn't even live in the valley. So that is a representative of what the feeling in the Northern Rivers is. And you've got to remember that Bentley is only around 12 kilometres outside of the city of Lismore and the city of Lismore voted 87% in a council referendum poll at a council election that they were opposed to coal seam gas. So it's majority opinion. The reason that Bentley blockade was so historic was because it was honestly looking like the government was going to have to turn out somewhere around 900 police against the community. It's not just a protest group, it's not just a small group of people. We were looking at, you know, up to 10,000 people driving to a site to protest that they did not want this invasive industry. It's just, it's undeniable what the feeling of the communities are and those feelings are echoed right around New South Wales by and Australia by communities facing similar projects. Thank you. I have another activist here. Pip, you're from the inner city uh, threatened by coal seam gas. What was your quite savvy, I'm sure, opinion of the proceedings today? It was a close vote. What was left out? Looking at the future for New South Wales, for um, particularly rural communities, but actually communities in Camden, southwest of Sydney, are also being threatened by coal seam gas. That are, it's current that the, the drills are very close to their houses, their schools, their pony clubs as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was narrowly lost, and um, unfortunately, you could see from the debate, the Liberals are completely staunchly and Nationals supporting the coal seam gas industry over everything else. So the concerns that are legitimate scientific concerns that have been raised by communities all across New South Wales but from experience looking at Queensland were completely ignored by the Nationals and the Liberals. I'm I'm curious uh, because the Nationals actually have lost a lot of ground by taking this um, pro-industry position. In other words, they're not even pretending to represent their constituents in the country. Um, so, I mean, they made it quite clear today that uh, um, that they weren't going to support their communities, they're going to support the industry over communities. Um, I, I found that quite breathtaking. There was an offensive speech at the early part by um, Honourable Member Phelps, and he slandered everybody in the community as Marxists and socialists and... Uh, what were the other epithets he used? He just uh, gave this impression, which doesn't seem to strike me at all, as what this very broad and diverse movement is. Yeah, the movement is very very broad, and uh, that was a very patronising, insulting speech. Uh, and it actually shows how little he does know about the people's concerns. It has, it has been a movement that's brought people together from a range of political backgrounds. That's the case. Uh, including <laughs> the Liberals and the Nationals. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and actually that's been its strength. 
Uh, and that's really why it's got this far in terms of preventing the industry from setting up in New South Wales where it thought it really had a good chance four years ago. Um, so I think it shows the extreme ignorance on the part of the Liberal Party um, and the extreme insensitivity on the part of the Liberal Party. And, uh, you know, I think he does himself a disservice by simply issuing um, slurs uh, against activists because uh, it's really, in the end, history is written by activists, not written by people like him. Yeah, I'm Phil Laird, National Coordinator for Lock the Gate. I guess this is politics. This is what happens when, um, you know, you've got land use conflict and you've got a government that's not listening. We don't think they're listening and we don't think that the science is up to spec yet. It's time for the government to uh, re- reassess and, you know, they are adopting the strategy of licence buybacks but, you know, sooner or later they'll reissue some of those licences and that doesn't meet the needs of people in the community. Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your love, 3CR. listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show on Radio 3CR. We've heard how determined those citizens of New South Wales are to stop fossil fuel coal seam gas and to protect the land, the water and the air which is filling up with greenhouse gases. But now the federal government is proposing legislation to stop citizens like this, green groups and individuals, activist citizens, from mounting court challenges against any major project. Here's Radio National's Fran Kelly talking to National's Barnaby Joyce. He's attacking the notion that an informed citizen in Melbourne, for example, or a group based in Melbourne could challenge a permit to mine coal and increase traffic and dredging near the Great Barrier Reef in Queensland. The Environment Minister Greg Hunt introduced the bill yesterday saying it would address a well-funded, highly coordinated threat to the approvals process for big developments. This is the direct Americanisation through the use of litigation to disrupt and delay key projects and infrastructure within Australia and to, I quote, directly increase investor risk, close quotes. This is an unprecedented new development in Australia, drawing the worst features of the American litigation industry into Australia. So who will be allowed to challenge development approvals under this legislation as amended by the government if it gets its way? Barnaby Joyce is the Federal Agriculture Minister. He's a local member for New England. Barnaby Joyce, welcome to RM Breakfast. Thanks for having me on your show. 
Greg Hunt told the Parliament people with a direct interest in a proposed development, like farmers and landowners, will have their rights protected under the amended law. But does that mean, for instance, only individual farmers, not their representative bodies, can challenge a project? No, they can be supported by a representative body, so I've checked that out with the Attorney-General. Uh, what this means is about standing, Fran, and people who are next door to a mine, such as on the Liverpool Plains, and I know that's where you're getting to, um, they have standing. They have standing because they're next door. They have standing because they're affected by the dust. They have standing because they're affected by the noise. They have standing because of concerns in regards to the aquifer. They have standing because it is it's imminent and it is next door and they have a, a pertinent interest to it. But uh, to say that someone has standing who is uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of kilometres away, who doesn't actually live in the area, who has really no connection to the area, uh, suggests that, um, you know, what, how do we navigate in a legal environment like that? And we've got to make sure that uh, this is not a binary argument. It's not a case that you hate all coal mines or you love all coal mines. That's a ridiculous proposition. What it is is there are appropriate places for a mine and there are inappropriate places for a mine. The people of central Queensland believe and are strongly supported by George Christensen, Michelle Lantry, Ken O'Dowd. Uh, they say that this is the appropriate place for a mine and the, certainly the people of Rockhampton think in central Queensland is where they want it. Yes, but this is not a, a law just for one mine. This is a law change for all mines and all projects forever on. Um, so this notion of a representative body, because I know some farmers are concerned that the change might challenge their capacity to, to challenge pr projects. I'm just going to play you a little bit of Tim Duddy, who I, I'm sure you know, a Liverpool Plains farmer, I think, constituent of yours, I think, the CEO of the Karuna Coal Action Group that challenged the uh, $1.2 billion Shenhua Watermark Coal Mine. On RN Drive last night, Tim Duddy expressed concerns about the way the law change could leave farmers like him exposed. By removing this power, it actually means that then you don't have somebody who can take an action to the court and claim it is in the public interest. So as a landholder, I would have standing to take the mining company to a court and I would be aggrieved, but as a landholder, I am also a holder of significant assets mm. and because they are my assets that have been affected, I could not argue the public interest to get this tried. So basically, if I I am going to disagree with anything the federal government does. I have to put my farm on the line to do it. And I think that's a concern that farmers like him would have to go personally. You're saying rep bodies could work. What about environmental bodies? What about, you know, a green group putting the case for farmers so it's not individual farmers? Would well, that be allowed under this? What we have is we have the capacity where if it wants to be the National Farmers Federation or the New South Wales Farmers have the capacity to... to or Greenpeace to, or the Environmental to, Defenders to, Office? They have to show... Have to, they have to prove standing. If they can't prove standing in a, in a clear relationship to uh, the issue, then... Um, and we are trying to take away deliberately that uh, people who are miles away from an issue don't have standing. If we, where we have at the moment, Fran, is I could basically say, you know, I'm going to stop this program because on the way in here I thought I saw a slug. You know, and, and it's and and where that that letter could come from, it's Perth. We've got to be realistic. The court will realistic. exercise its judgment, though, as a court always does. I mean, it can throw out vexatious claims, and, and it does. We know that. What I, I think people are interested in trying to nail down, and it's probably impossible to do it until it's tested, but what's the definition of next door versus the definition of thousands of miles away? There's well, a lot I, of room can, in the middle of that no, of people who might clear, be concerned. I can give an example why people on Liverpool Plains have standing and why the NFF and the New South Wales farmers can stand with those farmers mm -hmm. and, and make sure that they support a claim and, and because on issues such as 
dust. You'd say, well, the dust certainly goes over my farm, therefore I have standing. Noise, the noise certainly affects my farm, therefore I have standing. Um, the traffic, the traffic going in and out of, past my, my front gate affects my farm, therefore I have standing. It is next door to me, therefore I have standing. Um, it, I have concerns about the aquifers, therefore I have standing. And you might be downstream and still say, well, it's the same aquifer that goes past me, so I have standing. But I can't say, well, I'm actually uh, living in Melbourne and um, I've had a look on Google and I can see that there's a yakka skink there and therefore I'm going to deliberately try and forestall this project because... And people say, oh, well, that rarely happens. That's what's in the papers today. That rarely happens. Well, Fran, it's happened this time. But uh, it only happened because the minister didn't get the paperwork right. The court well, didn't rule. It's, it's, happened, it's happened this time. And the reason that we have the people of Rockhampton, and this is, it's not, as I said, it's not a binary argument. The reason that in this instance is where there should be a mine, where it's well supported by the community, where it's well supported by the area, where it's well supported by the local politicians, where people are asking for the economic growth. Well, the people of Rockhampton, the people of central Queensland are saying, do not compromise our economic future because we're doing it tough enough as it is. And this is an area where we want to mine. It's not, it's not highly productive agricultural farming land like the Breezer Plains. It's completely and utterly different and um, they're saying well you've now this program has stopped we have concerns about whether Adani will, will stick with us and if it goes well what are you going to what is this green group going to roll up into central Queensland to help pay for our house I understand that but as we've said before this is not just about the Carmichael mind Jackie Lambie for instance is heading to Liverpool Plains this weekend to talk to farmers about some of their concerns about the mine and about the laws how that might affect their capacity she says the nationals aren't doing their job so she's going to go uh, well, that's uh, that's. Um, I welcome Jackie to go to that area. I, I welcome any person who is, has a political interest to go in that area. Um, uh, people know my position, uh, and uh, as I said, I don't support a mine in the middle of the Breezer Plains. It's, a, it's the most productive land in Australia. Have you lost um, if, that battle? Now, if, is battle? Now, is if, that mine going to go ahead? If, Senator Lambie believes that she can stop it. Well, more powder arm, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be watching. It's, she has to try and affect the state government. Um, I don't know. Maybe she'll go down and tackle Mike Baird. I don't think quite know how she's going to do it, but it'll be an interesting one to watch. Our guest is the Federal Agriculture Minister, Barnaby Joyce. Thanks to Fran Kelly from ABC Radio National for that interview with Barnaby Joyce. Now, after the break, we're going to speak to a scientist. Uh, Her name is Dr. Deborah Roberts. She's based in Durban in South Africa, and she was called to the International Panel on Climate Change because of her expertise in getting cities to mitigate climate change and adapt to what the worst of it is coming. Uh, she's famous for her work in Durban in ecosystems climate ba- adaptation, which meant reforesting large areas around Durban. And I think Deborah appreciated especially the new breed of people who are coming up who are savvy about this sort of work and who are very progressive. She said that cities around the world are now generating local government officials who can bridge the gap between science and grassroots action. So tonight's program has been about grassroots activists who mostly want to stop big developments ruining the land and the water and the air. But Deborah is in favour of people who are, who are now taking the solutions in hand and have the information. So we uh, just have a small break and then we'll come back to hear Dr. Deborah Roberts from the IPCC. <laughs>
Dr Deborah Roberts is a scientist from Durban. She has made Durban a world leader in climate change adaptation and she contributed to Chapter 8 of the recent IPCC report. Last night she spoke at New South Wales Parliament House. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Radio, Deborah. Hi. Um, tell us about what has been achieved in Durban. Well, I think the importance of of the work done in Durban is that we've really raised the flag on the issue of climate change adaptation. Cities have been working in the mitigation space since 1992 and, in fact, were amongst the first elements of government to respond to the climate change challenge. But that's really been in the mitigation space. What we've come to realize, because we're predominantly an African city, is that our immediate priority um, lies in the space of the impacts and vulnerability um, related to climate change, and that we've got to deal with those first. We've got large numbers of poor people who are underserviced, and therefore adaptation needs to be raised on the agenda. And we've done that in two ways, through our local work, um, addressing adaptation at the local level in a variety of municipal sectors, but also raising the flag globally. So our mayor leads the Durban Adaptation Charter, which is now a network of over a 1,000 cities um, connected around their commitment to the Durban Adaptation Charter, which came out of COP11, all agreeing to prioritise adaptation as part of their development agenda. So we've we've really become the poster child for the adaptation message. Well, you had some photos in your presentation, but I didn't get any specifics. I'd like to know what specifically have you done? I saw some green roofs uh, and some modern-looking buildings and then some uh, what you called informal settlements. It's obviously a problem of vulnerable population. You have to take them with us as we adapt. Um, But tell us what did you do in the city? Well, I mean, it's it's been 10 years' worth of work, so mm. it's um, a, a long journey to describe it in a couple of minutes. But essentially what we did is we started off with an impact assessment, really asking that climate question at the local level, what does climate change mean for, for Durban? Having determined the kind of impacts we would be exposed to, many of them are familiar to you, changes in precipitation, uh, temperature changes, sea level rise. We then began work in the municipality, looking at adaptation in key sectors like water, disaster risk reduction and health and prepared a series of municipal plans around adaptation in in those sectors all of which has led to a combined uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation strategy for for the city. So we're one of the first cities around the world to have a combined uh, climate change response strategy. We've also worked very strongly in the arena of ecosystem-based adaptation uh, because in African cities we're simply not going to have the money to pour cement and concrete over everything. So we've got to work with our natural environment. We've done a lot of work. Uh, probably the best known of our work in that regard are our very large reforestation projects. Oh. So we work with a local NGO um, in peri-urban and rural areas where poor communities now make a living out of growing indigenous trees and we use those indigenous trees to rebuild natural forests and we call the uh, people who grow the trees tree panures because mm-hmm. they exchange their trees for credits which they use at tree stores and they can get food and clothing they pay for uh, better education for their kids they take driving lessons and so on so it's a real boon to those local communities those trees then go onto site uh, in one instance around one of our regional landfill sites 
um, to rebuild these forests, which then become important catchment management tools, improving water quality, reducing risk. Um, and we're looking to these areas to provide ongoing uh, sustainable livelihoods for, for those local communities um, through, for example, ecotourism and, and so on. So really closing that, that cycle of human welfare with an appropriate climate change response. I think it's very important. One city I do know is Sao Paulo. And I, at the time I was there years ago, it had 20, over 20 million people and they're running out of water. And I heard about people in high-rise buildings drilling for um, bore water. So I think cities do have to think ahead where their resources come from. No, absolutely. And Sao Paulo has still got 20 million people and it's still running out of water. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, in Durban currently, we're switching off parts of the city simply because we, we've run out of water as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing is the climate change challenge is really uh, costing or making us cast our eyes well into the future and thinking yes. about alternative solutions. Yes. All right. Well, look, taking this to scale worldwide, you said in the, your talk that during the next 10 years, we might, we'll see uh, $20 trillion dollars spent on infrastructure. Uh, I'd like to know what sort of infrastructure you suggest at the IPCC to reduce climate risk. Well, we, we don't suggest anything um, at the IPCC. Um, my, my colleague, Yorba Sukona, points out that uh, what we do is we produce the map and we let the policymakers navigate using that map. Um, that urban infrastructure, and it's, it's a point um, that's been raised in many of the presentations we've done on, on this Australian cycle, has to be something different. Uh, we can't be putting the usual infrastructure in the ground. And, you know, I think that difference ranges all the way from moving from big grid and distribution lines for electricity through to smaller decentralized renewable energy-based systems, all the way through to the other end of the scale of using ecosystem-based adaptation um, or using your ecological infrastructure um, as well as the the grey infrastructure. Just explain that a bit more. The listeners, I don't even know what you mean by that. (laughs) And ecological infrastructure really refers to using our indigenous ecosystems and seeing them as infrastructure. Structure. I think, um, you know, the way people see nature in the cities, they see the street trees and so on. But we're thinking much more of using the functioning ecosystems in cities. So using wetlands, using riverine corridors to control floods, take the edge um, off, off the risk. Um, those ecosystems are important in cleaning air and producing soil. So to use those ecosystem services that come from that green infrastructure to help run our cities. Well, um, you mentioned local governments, and a lot of people are starting to say, well, maybe federal and state governments aren't the best ones to make these decisions. There seem to be a lot of them locked into doing the least they can. How are local governments placed to take these policy maps you talked of um, to make climate smart cities? We see, I think local government is in the unique situation that it can't run and hide from its stakeholders. <laughs> so local governments really have no option but to, to pick up the baton on, on the climate change challenge. And I think that's why they are well-placed. They're down in the trenches with the people. They understand local context. And I think that's why there's often a frustration at national-level policy because it's often divorced and unrelated to, to local context. Um, and it's because of that connection between local government and local stakeholders that we've got the best opportunities for positive responses because ultimately all boils down to behavioural change, the way you and I live our lives. Mm. 
but we need people to help us and provide opportunities to live lives in alternative ways and local government is the best place to to do that. Okay, we're speaking to Dr. Deborah Roberts from the IPCC. Uh, she's made Durban a world leader in climate change adaptation. Uh, Deborah, on this radio program I have interviewed people from East Timor and the Philippines and they talk a lot about loss and damage. You mentioned it last night. They are already suffering from climate change. It's locked in. And I'd like you to explain about how loss and damage is the third pillar of the climate change debate. I hadn't heard that term, the third pillar. I don't know what the other two pillars actually are, but could you explain how loss and damage is probably in the Paris conference that's going to come up quite a lot? Yes. Well, I mean, just to clarify the, the third pillar, the, the bulk of the negotiations have revolved around mitigation and adaptation. What we've begun to realise is that some of the scenarios that the IPCC has documented in its fifth assessment report are realised. We'll be in an arena of climate change where the impacts are so severe we'll no longer be able to adapt. So adaptation assumes that we can respond positively to a challenge and largely overcome that challenge through our actions. Loss and damage indicates that there might be a set of circumstances or a time where we can't adapt anymore. So we will permanently lose or have permanent damage to a variety of systems. And if we look in the negotiations, the term loss and damage is really something that has come out of the work of of the small island developing states because they stand at risk of losing their countries. So those would be permanent losses. Um, the loss and damage issue has been around for several years but really started to gain a foothold in Doha. Um, we made greatest progress in Warsaw because that's where we put in place the Warsaw International Mechanism on, on loss and damage. And the real challenge for Paris, of course, is to ensure that loss and damage is featured as a key element in the Paris Agreement. Another aspect of the people I spoke to from Timor was about reforestation and listeners will remember we had a scientist there called Trudy Dale and she talked about the exact thing you said about reforestation restores the water catchment and you need the water so obviously you must reforest but Timor has a losing battle reforesting because they use a lot of wood for cooking and they have still have slash and burn agriculture and I would like to know um, you know, from your African experience, what um, local governments can do or who can shift people towards conserving the world's forests? You, you've told us how in Durban they made it worth people's while. They become, they were um, managing those forests. But what, what else can be done to shift that worldwide? We see, I think that's the role, again, of local government, is enabling choices. So people well know that cutting down a forest is a problem. It's, it's mm. not that people on the ground are at all stupid. No. They, they know the consequences, but they have no choice. No. Um, and this is where the idea of the small centralized renewable energy grid, if we give people alternative options on power, then that allows them to move away from uh, the use of the forest. But it has to be cost effective. And we've learned this hard lesson in South Africa mm. ourselves. You know, we brought electricity into people's homes uh, through a prepaid meter system, um, but then found that people simply couldn't pay for it. So it has to be cost effective. And so we have to give people options, options that are within their means to actually utilize and then provide the support and education to indicate why that alternative choice has to be made. So it's quite a complex uh, space, but, and it also means that you've got to be there all the time working with local communities around that. Yeah. So who is doing 
doing that educational work and promoting this you know beyond the sphere you know yeah well a lot of these technologies are you know still in the making in in the sense that if you look at the African condition um a lot of people are still working on developing the systems that will begin to make sense. For example, in rural areas in, in Africa, there is no system that really works well in that context. So there's a lot of R&D that needs to happen, um, a lot of development before these technologies can be employed in these areas, um, and then getting access to those technologies. So you know, we, we have a lot of debate in the negotiations around intellectual property, um, and that's where really we need global solidarity we need yeah. to realise we're in this together yeah. um, and and perhaps begin sharing a lot more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I liked the atmosphere at the talk last night. It seemed to be about that sort of solidarity. In Australia, we seem to be in a rather toxic culture at the moment of loggerheads, you know, and one of the issues is coal. And I asked you last night, I'd like to ask you again, what methods are the most effective to lower emissions? And I know um, one of them is to cut fossil fuel subsidies. That's been suggested, but most people I've interviewed balk at that. People People in government know they can't countenance that. Um, I would think no new coal mines, no new coal-fired power. Um, how, I just can't see how we can stay below 1.5 degrees of warming in the near future if we continue using fossil fuels. So what methods do you see as most effective, mechanisms are most effective? Well, I mean, mitigation is not really my area of expertise. No. So here I'll draw on what uh, my colleague Yubis Corner was telling us is that really it's, it's, it's a fairly complex equation of, of having to act now and, and not defer action and to begin deploying a fairly complex mix of energy efficiency, renewable uh, energy technologies. And within that, obviously, there's R&D. As I said, many of these things are not set up, for example, uh, adequately for, for continents like, like Africa. Africa, and then deploying a whole host of, of other interventions. So, you know, there, there isn't a silver bullet that's going to make um, this problem go away. But certainly, you know, as, as suggested by, by Working Group Blonde, um, we can't burn uh, all the fossil fuels that, that are in the ground. But uh, I, I unfortunately have no easy answer. It is this complex mix of really rapid action now and a whole host of interventions from energy efficiency all the way through to by energy. Mm. Well, my last question is about your trip here. Uh, a lot of Australians are rather hoping that the Paris conference will sort of humiliate our leaders in some way, or at least that the world um, progressive thought there will lean on them to open up to what's happening worldwide and make us more to lift our game on climate action because we're going backwards at the moment, I think. And I'd like to know what impression have you formed speaking to leaders in all the different fields that you've been speaking to here? No, I mean, and everyone we've met, certainly, we've not met one denier, which has um, been very pleasing. I, I think everyone acknowledges that climate change is a very real challenge. I think the approaches have varied quite dramatically uh, between the, the parties. The important thing, I think, though, is to go back to that bottom line. If everyone acknowledges we've got a problem, it, it gives us an open door. Mm. So some of the doors might be wider open than others. But in the game of politics, you know that even a small crack is, is useful. Um, and I think Paris, there are certain signs this year mm. from the G77, or G7 um, agreements, from the uh, progress we've seen in the U.S., which may raise the bar in Paris and 
and encourage even those with just the door slightly open to, to crack it open somewhat further. So we'll wait and see. I think there are a lot of our listeners are activists in this field and I hope you give them a bit of hope. So thank you very much. We've been speaking to Dr Deborah Roberts from Durban and she's a contributor to the IPCC report, Chapter 8. What was the name of the chapter? Urban Adaptation. Thank you very much.